An older gentleman was driving home from work when his cell phone rang, and his wife was on the line, and in a panic she said, Honey, be careful driving. I just saw on TV that some maniac is driving the wrong way on the interstate. The old man replies, One, there's hundreds of them. (laughs) That sign I used to have hanging over my drafting board, if everything is coming your way, you're probably in the wrong lane. When we come to the fourth verse of Philippians chapter 4, if we're really honest with ourselves because of how we might feel or what our situation might be, we might have a tendency to say, that just can't be right. It sounds like the wrong lane. And part of the reason for that is that it is a command. And it sounds like sometimes it's an unreasonable command. How can I do this when there's so much going against me? When my circumstances are crummy, when my job is on the line, or maybe I'm unemployed, when health is not good, when I'm discouraged, when I'm depressed, when I just can't seem to get out from under whatever I happen to be under at the moment. And of course, the command is Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I say rejoice. And if I'm honest myself, I go, I'm not sure I know how to do that. How do I maintain a spirit of joy in spite of my circumstances? How do we obey God when we really don't feel like it? When I really don't think I could do it anyway, we might tend to think that it might be one of those impossible things that we just have to put in God's hands and and let him work out. Then I realize, as I read Philippians, that eight times Paul wrote of either his joy or the joy of the Philippians. And now Paul sees this joy thing as being so important, so necessary, that he commands it with emphasis. He repeats it. I've said this before in, in the Hebrew mind, if, you know, or at least in the English mind, if we want to emphasize something, we highlight it, we put it in all caps, we do that in text. Somebody thinks we're mad at them or shouting at them. But we find our ways to highlight it. In, in the Hebrew mind, they would just repeat it. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto to you. And here Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why does he say that? Because their spiritual stability is at stake. They cannot stand firm in the Lord without rejoicing in the Lord. So if we're going to rejoice in the Lord always, if we're going to be spiritually stable, we need to know how to get it done. How do we maintain a spirit of joy? How do we maintain a spirit of joy in our church? How do we maintain a spirit of joy in our own lives and personal personal experiences in the Lord? First of all, we need to come to the solid conclusion in our own minds that we are what we think we are. We are what we think we are. That it doesn't begin with our emotions. It doesn't begin with how we feel about things. It doesn't begin with what we do. It doesn't begin with how we behave or how we respond to the difficulties we face in life or how we respond or how we feel when we are mistreated, it all begins up here. It's all in your head. It's all in, in your minds. Whether it's the command to love one another as Christ has loved us, the command to rejoice in the Lord always begins up here. And if I allow it to begin with my emotions... If I allow it to begin with my feelings, they will dominate what I say and what I do, and therefore, what I think. 
The writer to the Proverbs understood this well. You don't need to turn to it, but the writer of the Proverbs of the Proverbs said of the man in the seventh verse of Proverbs 23, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. In the King James, as a man thinketh, so is he. The man is who he thinks he is, or as the King James Version, thinks who he is in his heart. Our thinking determines who we are and therefore determines what we do. The Lord Jesus showed us this connection in the seventh chapter of Mark's gospel. In verse 21, he said, For for from within, out of the hearts of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. It begins in the heart of man, in this case the evil heart, in the core of who he is, in his inner being, who he really is deep inside, and then it proceeds to evil thoughts, how he thinks, to what a man thinks, and then the thinking manifests itself in actions and behaviors. The thinking works itself out here, as Jesus says, in fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. It begins in the heart, it begins in the thoughts of the mind, and then it's acted upon in a person's behavior. Now, it can either be good behavior or it can be bad behavior. It can be good deeds or it can be evil deeds. It could be positive emotions that are expressed or negative emotions. What we do, what we say, what we feel is the result of what we think. And this is what Jesus said in Luke's gospel. He said, the good man out of the good treasure of his hearts brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks that which fills the heart. So what does this have to do with joy and rejoicing? If you haven't already done so, please turn to the fourth chapter of Philippians. Because I want you to see something in verses 6 through 9. If you're using the Bible that's under the seat in the racks, it's on page 1437. And uh, so I'll be giving those numbers Possibly. (laughs) I know they don't have a whole lot to do. But I'm going to warn you before we're done this morning, you've got to find the book of Habakkuk. So now you're probably not going to think of anything else, but you're going to wonder, where was Habakkuk? Paul wants us to, as he writes this, as he puts in his letter to the Romans, to renew our minds. Be transformed how? By the renewing of our minds. So in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, Paul is showing us how to think correctly so that we might act correctly, so we might obey correctly, so that we might rejoice always. So I want you to circle some key words that have to do with our thinking with the mind. And if you're using the Bible that's in the rack, you can still circle. It's okay to write in it. In verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4, circle the word anxious. Be anxious for nothing or be careful for nothing. In other words, don't be full of care. Uh, Do not worry, some of it says. Uh, The word translated anxious or worry there comes from the word that means to have a divided mind, to have a distracted mind. The idea is that when we're worrying about something, our thoughts are distracted. We can only think about what we're worrying about. And even though we try to go to something else, we keep coming back to that which we worry about. So it dominates our thinking. And remember, we will act and respond depending upon how we think. And then in verse 7, circle the word comprehension. Uh, Your translation might say understanding. Literally, it says the peace of God which surpasses all the mind. All that the mind can can think of and conceive. The idea is that God's peace that we can experience is even beyond our thinking. 
And in verse 7 as well, circle the word mind or minds. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One more word in verse 8, and I want you to listen for it. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whether whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, what? Dwell on these things. Let your mind think on these things. Consider these things. Literally, it's ponder these things. Think on these things. Dwell on these things. And if you dwell on these things, you're going to experience joy. And you're going to rejoice. If you dwell on these things, you're going to be spiritually stable. You won't be like the double-minded man in, that James talked about who is unstable in all his ways. So here's the problem. Here's where we get messed up in our thinking. We tend to think of joy in the same incorrect way that we think of love. We tend to think of love as a victim of our emotions rather than as being a servant of our wills. In other words, we think we can't help who we love. And we think that we have to give in to the emotion of it. Quite frankly, the word for love in the Greek agape really has nothing about emotion in the basic sense of the word. Love is sacrificial service, agape love. And it's the same way the Greek word for joy, kara, is not expressive of emotions. Now, of course, with joy and love, there are emotions that attach themselves, and we do feel things. We are feeling beings, but these are not basically emotional terms. But since we think of love as being a victim of our emotions rather than being a servant of our wills, we think that the notion of love as something being commanded is absurd. Yet Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are commanded to love in the same way we are commanded to rejoice. But if you're like me, you rebel against that because we wonder, how can anyone command me to love? Because I just can't turn love off and on like a switch. It's how I feel. In an American society, we are taught to do what? Go with your feelings. Do what your heart tells you to do. What is your heart telling to do? Go with what you feel is right. And as soon as we go with that and go with our emotions, we like to think of ourselves as victims of whatever is sloshing in us and sloshing around us. I'm just a victim because after all, this has been done to me or this was said to me or this is my circumstance and I feel this way, therefore I'm going to go with, with how I feel. And in the same way, we tend to think of joy as completely determined by external factors. What's happening to us, what's happening around us. That our joy is determined by these factors of which we have no control. And therefore, how can anyone, especially the Apostle Paul, let alone anybody else, command us to have joy? To rejoice in the Lord always. I don't feel like I want to be joyful. There's nothing going on in my circumstances that make me think that I should be joyful. So I'm simply not going to rejoice. So let's back it up and get it in the right order. It begins with how we think. And here's the key. It's not what you think of yourself. It's not what you think about your own troubles and situation. It's not what you think of your own blessings or lack of blessings. 
It's not how you think things are going or not going, even though we can't help but think about those things. We have to think about them, but the key is not what I think about who I am or my own situation. The key is, what do I think of God? What do I think of God? This is the key to spiritual stability, to rejoicing, to joy, to love. What do you think of God? What comes to your mind when you think of God? Knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. It's also the key to loving, right? We love why? I've already quoted it because Christ, because God first loved us. When we understand that God loves us and we experience his love, we are able to obey the command and love others. What we think of God is the key to rejoicing. What we think of God is the key to loving. It's the key to everything that we feel, everything that we say, everything we do. It's the key to emotional stability. It is true that believers often cannot find reason to rejoice because there are specific circumstances. Certainly as we look at the general wickedness in our world today, we see the sorrow, we see the misery, whether it's in the Middle East or it's in Ferguson, Missouri, or it's next door, of the death that we see in the world, that evokes no joy. I think I'll turn on Fox News and increase my joy level for just a little while. <laughs> and certainly other people are not a source of joy. Since other people change, they can hurt us, they can disappoint us, they can let us down. They don't live up to our expectations. The only sure, reliable, unwavering, unchanging source of joy is God. That is why Paul commands believers to rejoice. How? In the Lord. The phrase in the Lord introduces this important spiritual principle. Spiritual stability is directly related to how a person thinks about God. Spiritual stability is directly related to how a person thinks about God. In his classic book on the attributes of God, A.W. Tozer wrote in The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that one again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He continues, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say and do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Almost the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-declosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty 
the spiritual future of that man. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. Those who know the great truths about God find it easy to rejoice, whatever their circumstances are. And those with little knowledge of him find it difficult to rejoice. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the first psalm, Psalm chapter 1. The first three verses of the first psalm. In the Bible, in the rack, it's on page 637. <laughs> yeah. And I have no idea what page it's on in your Bible. Psalm 1. Psalms is right in the middle, and if you just back up, you know, you could find the first psalm. God gave the psalms to Israel in poetic form. What a marvelous gift of God. And he gave them that way so they could be easily memorized and easily set to music. The psalms are memorable expressions of what we think of God. And the first three verses of the book of Psalms promise blessings to those who meditate on Scripture. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in the season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. That is spiritual stability, and that's the main point of our, our passage in Philippians. And it comes, that spiritual stability comes from a knowledge of God and repeated recitation and singing of the nature and attributes of God that fills the believer's heart with joy, with delight. I like the word delight in the Hebrew as it's translated in the Psalms or as it comes from, or as we see it in the Psalms. The Greek word is sha'ah. Literally, it means to romp. It's used of the child in the millennial period who plays or romps by the den of the cobra without fear. It means to play in a, in a rompful way. You know, that's the delight that we have in the law of the Lord when we get that knowledge of him and we put it in such a way that we can recite it, we can sing it. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were arrested for, for preaching the gospel. The high council, the Sanhedrin, threatened them with death, flogged them, released them. But so deep was the apostles' knowledge of God's character and his purposes that even suffering for Jesus Christ was for them a cause of joy. The 41st verse of Acts chapter 5 says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. There's an old hymn by Horatius Bonar. We have a couple of his hymns in our, in our hymn books. We don't have this particular one. But he wrote in the first two lines, "'Tis what I know of thee, my Lord and God, that fills my soul with peace, my lips with song." Tis what I know of thee, my Lord and God, that fills my soul with peace, my lips with song. The hymn writer rightfully recognizes that the song that fills my soul, the song that gives me peace, comes from what I know of God, what I think about God, not the other way around. 
You know, and quite frankly, this is a weakness of what we see in some contemporary Christian music today. There's a lot of talk about rejoicing. There's a lot of talk about praising, how one is feeling, what motions are to be expressed. But there is very little in some of these songs concerning deep thinking about God. His nature, his character, his works, his, works, his purpose. And when there's little deep thinking about God, there's going to be little cause for rejoicing. And much of it comes off as mindless chatter. It's intended to elicit some kind of emotion or feelings about whatever the song may or may not want you to feel about, but it gives no basis for how you are to feel that way. Listen to the contrast in this first verse of Boner's hymn. Tis what I know of thee, my Lord and God, that fills my soul with peace, my lips with song, Thou art my health, my joy, my staff, my rod. Leaning on thee in weakness, I am strong. More of thyself, oh, show me hour by hour. More of thy glory, oh, my God and Lord. More of thyself and all thy grace and power. More of thy love and truth, incarnate word. This hymn is just not the same as saying, I just want to praise you, lift my hands and love you. Because... The circumstances of the writer of the hymn have been, could have been absolutely brutal. His job may have been lost. His marriage may have been on the rocks. His children may have been a challenge. And if he was going to allow the circumstances of his life to dictate his want to, I just want to, then he has no chance in the world. But he can still sing this hymn, we can still sing this hymn, and have God fill our hearts with joy and peace and our lips with song because it is in knowing God that gives us the want to. In other words, it's his thinking that determines his doing. It's his thinking about God that determines his praise and rejoicing. It's not the result of being fluffed up by some superficial experience or hyped up by some kind of worship experience that leaves you horribly flat when you walk out the door on a Sunday morning. True worship engages the mind. It's rational. And whether it's a psalm, whether it's a hymn, whether it's a contemporary praise song, the soul of intention of the song must draw our thoughts to God because it's from the knowledge of God and repeated recitation and singing of those thoughts of his nature, of his character, his attributes. That is where and from our joy comes in the Lord. How does that great hymn go? And when I think, and when I think that God, his son, not sparing. Send him to die. I scarce can take it in. I can scarcely understand that. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When I think what God did, his nature, his attributes, what? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the worlds thy hand have made. I call this with Winnie the Pooh on it, my awesome wonder tie. That's why I wore it this morning. I named my ties. I know it's a little weird. But it's Winnie the Pooh looking up at the creation of God. My awesome wonder. When I think, when I consider with my mind, when I ponder these things, Paul said, then sings my soul. 
We see this over and over again in Scripture, rejoicing in the Lord, because it comes from the knowledge of God. It comes from repeated recitation and singing of his nature and attributes that the believer's joy flows. Moses' father-in-law Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. After the dedication of the temple, Solomon sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people Israel. Believers rejoice in the contemplation of God's redemption. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. In the 13th Psalm, David confidently asserted, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And one more, Psalm 71, verse 23. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul which you have redeemed. I wanted to bring it back to the right emotions that are governed or associated with joy. The reason that many of us feel like we cannot respond to the exhortation to rejoice in the Lord always is because we have determined that we're going to let our feelings control it all. I don't feel like rejoicing, so I can't do it. I don't have a song in my heart. I can't put a song in my heart that must be expressed, so there's, there's just nothing there. And the scriptures come to us over and over again and say, no. When we understand what is right and understand what is good of our Lord and we commit our wills to accomplishing that which is right and good and then in turn our feelings are molded by what we think and what we do. And our feelings and emotions are not isolated from our thinking and our willing but are guided by it. And our feelings and emotions are not divorced from our thinking and doing, but are constrained and guided and are formed by what we think and what we do. Alistair Begg, Pastor Alistair Begg, that you might hear on the radio once in a while. You can hear him all the time if you want to. But anyway, he relates this to a, to a mountain climber. You know, these rock climbers. You know, these guys that go up these rock faces, they don't have a rope, they don't have nothing, they don't have tools, it's just fingers and toes you know I go how can how can they do that these guys scare me but pastor Begg says this is why when you see rock climbers on these precipitous situations and you say to them after the climb weren't you scared to death out there their answer is yes this is how they were feeling but they're doing as they took another handhold as they take another toe hold was directly related not to how they were feeling, but on the basis of what they were thinking, their concentration. This is what I must do to climb the rock face. Namely, I cannot allow how I am feeling to jeopardize the right kind of thinking, which leads to the proper kind of doing. Otherwise, I won't be climbing anymore. If feeling dominates the rock climber, he's dead. He's no longer a climber, he's a faller. And if feeling dominates the Christian, he or she is done for. He or she is no longer a climber, but a faller. The fact of the matter is, the order of things has been all turned around. 
When Adam fell into sin in the garden, the order of things got all, all out of whack. Adam was no longer dominated by what he thought of his creator. Up to that point, he had been totally dominated by what he thought of God. God brought the animals before Adam and said, I want you to name these things. And, you know, why did God do that? Because each time Adam looked at that animal or that thing or whatever it was, he saw something of the creative character of his God. God was revealing himself to Adam through his, his creation. And so he thought more of God and thought this of God and that of God. But when he fell into sin, when he sinned, Adam was no longer dominated by thoughts of his creator. He was dominated by how he felt, his feelings. How did Adam respond after he sinned and God came to the garden and called after him? Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was, what? Afraid, feelings, because I was naked and ashamed, feelings. So I hid myself. It was no longer about Adam's knowledge of God. It was no longer what Adam thought of God. It was about how Adam felt about himself and felt about God. The order of things was all overturned by sin. So our thinking is so often overruled by our feelings. And in that recital, it's only possible to rejoice when you are feeling good. And that's when your circumstances are conducive to joy. So unless your circumstances are conducive to joy, unless you are feeling good, you don't have a chance in the world. You are done. You are gloomy. Did you know that's why you're gloomy? That's why. The only time you're happy, you're strumming on the steering wheel like the way Alistair Begg does this one. You know, I, I'm not a steering wheel strummer, but he must be. You know, because you can hear him on the radio going, doop de doo doo singing down there, you know, and strumming the steering wheel. Oh, this is, life is so good, you know. But the only time you can do that if you rest on feelings is just right after you got a raise or you found that new job or, or you're, you're, the doctor said, hey, you're going to live, not even going to live, but you're going to make a million dollars this year. And then you feel, <laughs> you feel really good, whatever it is. And why is that? Because we have allowed external forces to fill us up. But what about when things aren't going so well? When they say, you know, Cokes are a dollar at McDonald's. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's nice, <laughs> but I don't have a dollar today. When you think your job is in the line, when you think you might get laid off tomorrow, when your relationships are fractured, is it possible to rejoice then? You see, if you start from feelings and work the other way around, you'll never be able to rejoice. But if you start with who and what you know of God, then it's possible. So now I want you to turn to the book of Habakkuk. Dust off the pages in your Bible, unless you're using one of the new ones. Page 1164 in the new Bibles. Now, if you find the book of Daniel, which if you're in the adult Sunday school class, your Bible probably opens automatically the book of Daniel. There's Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and then Habakkuk. And I've always remembered that it had Habakkuk. And then I had things in my mind that I'd help remember it. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. Habakkuk has been complaining that God hasn't done enough. God isn't doing enough with all the things that are going on on the earth. There's enemies coming against us. They had their own version of ISIS in those days. And, you know, they, they were just really worried about what was going on. And basically, Habakkuk is complaining and saying, God, when are you going to come down here and do something about this? 
Well, God shows up and speaks in Habakkuk chapter 3. And in verse 16, when Habakkuk thinks about the word of the Lord that came to him, he responds, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound my lips quivered. You ever seen that in a little kid when he knows he's in trouble, his bottom lip is quivering? Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Tremble. Habakkuk's not feeling good at this point at all. Decay enters my bones. It sounds like you ever had that bad flu or you just feel sick, rottenness to the bones, literally. Why, Habakkuk? He continues, because I must wait patiently for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. You're in deep trouble, Habakkuk. Thanks for telling us how you feel. But now tell us what you're going to do. What are you going to do, Habakkuk? What are you going to do? Are you going to act on your feelings? Or are you going to act on what you know of your God? Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit in the vines, though the yield of the olive tree should fail, and the fields produce no fruit, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Now, if you're a farmer and you went through that list, you're done for. If you're anybody, you go through that list. And if Habakkuk goes with his feelings, he cannot rejoice. What are you going to do, Habakkuk? Verse 18, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. If Habakkuk goes with his feelings, if he goes with his circumstances, he cannot exalt in the Lord. He has to make his feelings subservient to what he knows of his provider God. Then on the strength of what he, uh, the strength of that, he declares, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will exalt in the Lord. In other words, it's not driven by feelings. It's driven by the knowledge of God. Verse 19. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds places, and makes me walk in high places. What a great picture of stability, of spiritual stability. He has made my feet like hinds feet, makes me walk on the high places. Can you just picture the, the mountain goats as there? How do, they, how do they do that? How do they go across there? One of my favorite pictures that uh, my, my uh, mom, my mother-in-law, and my wife got me for Christmas one year, it's just called Faith down at the bottom, and then it's this tall picture and it shows a mountain goat jumping from cliff to cliff. And he's right in, in midair. And it's called faith. How do they do that? You know, I'm not much of a rock climber, you know. <laughs> but he makes my feet. This is how it's possible to always rejoice in the Lord. This is why there can be joy even in the midst of the deepest trial. This is why there can be joy even when we're feeling the deepest pains. This is why all hell can unleash itself against us. And I'm going to continue to hold on and rejoice in the Lord. One commentator has put it this way as we close. The cure for a crushed and bitter spirit is to see Jesus Christ the Lord and then to rejoice in him. Lurking and nourished sins are always a sign that our vision of Jesus is dim and that our joy in him has evaporated with the morning dew. 
By contrast, the believer who practices rejoicing in the Lord will increasingly discover balm in the midst of heartaches, rest in the midst of exhausting tension, love in the midst of loneliness, and the presence of God in control of excruciating circumstances. Such a believer never gives up the Christian walk. Resolve always to rejoice in the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, I think all of us would admit that there's days where times, circumstances where we just don't feel like we have what it takes. Things are getting us down, taking us over, taking us out sometimes, Lord. And our tendency at that point is to go with our feelings, go with how we feel, look at our circumstances. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, that when we feel that way, when we're going through those kinds of things, Lord, that you would give us through your grace, through your mercy, through your gentleness, a greater vision of you. Like Moses, when he was overwhelmed by the fact of taking the stiff-necked and a rebellious people into the land of promise, Moses cried out, Lord, how can we go if you do not go with us? And Moses' heart cry was, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Father, whatever it is that we're feeling and sensing and going through today, Lord, show us your glory. Pull us back to you. Pull us tight to you. Surround us and Hug us with your love and tender compassions. For Father, it is out of that which will be that wellspring, that fountainhead of our joy no matter what we are going through. And we ask it in Jesus' name.